follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash CFRC. Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 7 of Right of Reply on CFRC 101.9. My name is Quinn Giordano. On this week's episode, we look at the climate conference in Paris and the youth activism surrounding it. We speak with Brenna Owen, a member of the Canadian Youth Delegation, as well as singer, songwriter, and documentary filmmaker Luke Wallace to discuss their work in advocating for environmental justice. As always, we include in our program another edition of Campus Perspectives with Noah Gordon and a discussion featuring Holly Hondrick. To start, we wanted to provide a brief introduction explaining the nature and content of the climate conference. The Paris Climate Conference, which ran from November 30th to December 12th, was the meeting place of 195 countries and their respected governments to negotiate an international plan for reducing global greenhouse gas emissions and the overall threat of climate change. The main objectives that came from the conference centered around containing global warming to just 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures, reductions in carbon emissions, and the steps that each compliant country will take toward, towards achieving these goals. At the conference, Prime Minister Trudeau outlined a five-step plan for Canada's steps towards environmental change. He describes the plan as acting according to the best scientific research and advice, supporting policies that contribute to a low-carbon economy and carbon pricing, working harmoniously with everyone in Canada, especially Indigenous peoples, towards environmental change, equipping the so-called developing world with resources to facilitate clean energy technologies and establishing a sustainable economy through the creation of green infrastructure and green jobs. In order for this to be successful, the country needs to come together collectively to see such goals through, despite the lack of an adequate international enforcement mechanism. To start the discussion about the UN Climate Change Conference and the political effort to mobilize support to meet these new goals, here's Quinn Giardino, discussing the conference with Brenna Owen, a member of this year's Canadian Youth Delegation. Brenna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Quinn. It's really exciting to be back on Ride Reply. It's where I got my start in radio, basically, at CFRC. Um, so it's kind of, uh, it's neat to come full circle and, and be on the show and talk about some things that are really close to my heart. Absolutely. And to see that a legacy has lived on. Yes, which is really exciting. I never thought that Red Reply would be in its, I guess, fifth season, fourth. So yeah, it's uh, thank you for taking the reins. Oh, anytime, anytime. So let's talk about the Canadian Youth Delegation. Yeah, so um, the Canadian Youth Delegation is part of the Canadian Youth Climate Coalition. And it's a group of young people um, who are largely kind of self-led, largely autonomous. Um, who travels to the UN climate change conferences each year. Um, the CYD has been going to these conferences for about 10 years now. Um, and I have been, this is my second year, uh, being a member of the delegation. So last year, seven women from across uh, seven provinces in Canada, um, or six provinces, attended the COP20 negotiations in Lima, Peru. And then this year's negotiations, which were far more covered um, in media, particularly mainstream media, were held in Paris, and they're known as COP21. And the some people uh, wonder what COP stands for. So it's Conference of Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And it's a bit of a mouthful. It's a very inaccessible process. But uh, now you know, if you didn't before, COP21 means it's the 21st year um, since the UNFCCC began in 1992. 
And uh, what were the objectives of the Canadian youth delegation at uh, the climate conference this year? Yeah, so it changes kind of year to year. It's obviously very different than it was last year. So I'll tell you a little bit about um, kind of my experience going to COP last year, which was Prime Minister Stephen Harper's last COP. Um, that he presided over. Um, there were far fewer Canadians and far fewer um, media as well from from Canada um, and from around the world. I would say there there was just there was over 350 people on the Canadian delegation this year at COP, um, and so that just kind of set a very different tone. So we had to decide the strategies and messaging that we were uh, going to going to aim for our goals. Um, uh, coming into the conference knowing that it would be very different under Prime Minister Trudeau and I'd love to talk a little bit more about that later but yes. um, yeah. basically our, our first kind of pillar is um, that the Trudeau government fully implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and they've promised to do so and we're now kind of waiting on the how and when. Um, we need a justice-based transition to a, a green economy justice has to be the foundation of this this vast economic and cultural and societal shift so it has to start with all levels of Canadian government fully implementing UNDRIP the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and other calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission this means full prior and informed consent for all energy projects and things are really heating up in uh, the province of British Columbia right now because the BC Supreme Court just ruled in favor of First Nations uh, legal challenge against the BC government for not um, having enough of a consultation process in the Kinder Morgan pipeline um, like Burnaby Mountain expansions. So um, free prior and conform, informed in consent for energy projects was a huge ask of ours that we expect to be, um, we, you know, we demanded of our government whether or not we expect to see that, we'll see. Um, it's going to require the Canadian government to follow the leadership of Indigenous peoples across Canada who have already begun bu uh, building community-based solutions to the climate crisis, um, and also ensuring that Indigenous communities are the first to benefit from the clean energy economy is going to be fundamental to reconciliation in this country. Um, and some of the specific things that this include included for us, our demands in Paris, were that the government freeze the growth of destructive fossil fuel projects, including the tar sands and the pipelines, which um, are slated like Energy East and the um, Trans Mountain expansion to um, boost the capacity of the tar sands to, to ship oil. Um, these are gross human rights and treaty violations. So that was uh, a foundation of our demands while we were in Paris. Um, recognizing again that the Trudeau government has just been elected and has a lot of promises that it's working on, but already we're a little bit concerned, for instance, that Prime Minister Trudeau said he would um, not be grandfathering proposed pipeline projects like Energy East into his old, not the old National Energy Board kind of regulations, and he's backtracking on that promise now. So we're concerned that proposed pipelines like Energy East won't be subject to um, a test around, around climate change. And um, another kind of shorter ask we had um, was Canada committing to a justice-based transition to a clean economy, which means a national commitment to zero emissions by 2050, um, zero net emissions. So this means ambitious targets in the very near term. And you know, in 2009, we promised to, to end um, fossil fuel subsidies. 
Um, and we want to build on that. We want to see that promise implemented and, and see a freeze of the tar sands. And that means rejecting um, false solutions like carbon capture and storage, which only perpetuates um, the cycle in which we're caught in fossil fuel consumption, um, and, and shift in favor of community-led renewables and accessible collective infrastructure um, and retraining programs for workers. So um, those were two pillars that we were um, advocating for in Paris. I could tell you a little bit about kind of the outcome of the agreement. Um, that was Canada, the next question. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm doing a lot of talking. No, it's very but, good um, so far. Feel free. Yeah, it flows right into um, what I would say next is that um, under Harper, we we tried to hold that government accountable, but they made so few promises that were so unambitious and, and frankly just easy to break or that they broke and flew under the radar. Um, we actually have a real opportunity now to say the Canadian government committed to an agreement that aims to keep warming, quote unquote, significantly below two degrees Celsius. Um, and in other terms, it's, it's definitely a nuanced difference, but Canada has signed on to 1.5, basically, um, degrees warming as the maximum. But we don't have a national strategy to do that, really. We're going to need, as I said, like incredibly um, ambitious uh, um, fossil fuel emissions um, reduction uh, targets. And so um, the solutions are there. A lot of groups are, are, are pointing the, the government in the right directions. Um, but this is where we need to see uh, that we have a level of accountability to be met with the 1.5 degrees in, in pushing us towards zero emissions by 2050. Um, so it's exciting that the Canadian government signed on to the agreement, which is like a much better foundation than previous agreements, but it's still, we don't have the national domestic plan in place to meet that target, which is why, you know, um, there's a lot of optimism about like sunny ways in Canada right now, but yep. we've still got really, really far to go in terms of um, paying our fair share and living up to our climate responsibilities. So talk to me a little bit more about the differences between uh, being at this conference with uh, a liberal government and how things were under Stephen Harper and how much of that was, as you said, purely because of the rhetoric that you were trying to hold the Canadian government accountable to, and how much of it was because of um, actual restrictions on media access? Well, as I mentioned, the Canadian government delegation was just much larger. So mm -hmm. Trudeau invited many more people to be part of the official delegation. I mean, four of our members actually received what are called party badges, pink party badges, which allowed them access into... Um, the negotiations rather than just non-governmental observer badges. Um, and so that gave us unprecedented access, I would say, which never happened under Harper, as well as um, Elizabeth May being on the delegation, Nathan Cullen receiving a party badge. Um, we saw um, Thomas Mulcair there, so in term, uh, as well as the, the chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Bellegarde. But um, it's also, a, you know, that looked incredible. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it was incredible. And our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau declared to the General Assembly, like, Canada is back. Um, and, you know, Elizabeth May supported that statement. And a lot of people felt that um, Canada was back as an international kind of diplomat, um, living up to what many people perceive to be a legacy of peacekeeping and diplomacy, which is um, 
I would say, a false myth of Canadian nationhood. Um, So more people were in attendance and um, there was a, a kind of a veneer of inclusion, but you also have to look at whose opinions are being valued most at the table. So um, our environment minister, Catherine McKenna, had tweeted prior to COP, great to meet representatives of Synovus and other like uh, oil companies. Today, uh, we're all in this together. So we sat down with the minister and talked a little bit about that strategy. And one of my friends uh, gave the great example that in 50 years, Synovus or TransCanada could be um, and probably will be like an industrial wind farm company. And they're still going to be appropriating indigenous lands um, that and it could pose like vast uh, industrial issues for for places that are cultural, uh, nat- naturally sensitive habitats. So um, so there was definitely this kind of like veneer of positivity, whereas under Harper, certainly like we would never have even gotten a seat at the table. Um, you know, I believe previous delegations had had meetings with Peter Kent, um, but we were never really able to hold uh, the Harper government or his environment ministers accountable to any of their provinces. And, and there was just an absolute lack of answers for any questions that we had. Um, of course, we're still waiting um, on the Trudeau government to provide us details for things like the Premier Summit, which is supposed to happen within 90 days of COP and uh, determine some kind of national energy plan um, and perhaps also the our emissions targets, because we know that prior to COP, um, Catherine McKenna had also said that the Harper emissions targets will be the floor. So it could be entirely possible that Harper's incredibly unambitious climate targets are what the Trudeau government uses moving forward. So this is an opportunity to hold them accountable to uh, creating this national uh, plan for emissions reduction, um, both by lobbying the premiers and at the federal level. So what kind of reception do you get when you are actually speaking to a minister at a conference like this? Do you find that uh, that, that, um, that you're that you're just being kind of talked at, or that you're just kind of you, know, you have the opportunity to sound off uh, in the same room, or do you feel that it really is a constructive dialogue that you're you're able to have there? I would say it is not a constructive dialogue. Um, right. Our first kind of action that received a little bit of actually mainstream media attention um, from the National, even mentioned in the Guardian, was. Um, included our demands, like a transition to Indigenous and community-led renewables, um, an expa- a freeze on the expansion of the tar sands, and then um, also incorporated the ele- elephant, <laughs> elephant, sorry, ele- one of our slogans was uh, tar sands elephant in the room, but yeah, um, yeah. the element of um, youth need to be seen, not, sorry, youth need to be heard, not just seen, because we were get- right. getting a lot of offers for, um, like, we'll take a, a selfie with you, we'll take a photo with you, um, but we're not going to actually sit down with you. We yeah. did manage to have meetings with like Ontario's Premier Kathleen Wynne, with various environment ministers, with um, the federal environment minister, Catherine McKenna. But um, I would say that while they heard us, um, I'm not sure how reflected our concerns were in the policies that they were actually pushing. I think frankly, that they were a little bit surprised that the Canadian youth delegation uh, took a critical lens at all um, because of how much better things were than under Harper. But being better than Harper isn't really something to brag about, as we know. And 
So one of the things we also advocated was um, young people elected Justin Trudeau on a platform of real change. So even though we didn't see any real ambitious climate targets and policy um, during the campaign period, um, no details around those things, for me, real change means a justice-based transition to a clean energy economy. And I know that's not the case for everyone, but we, as a collective, decided we need change from Stephen Harper. So um, I would, I, I, I think that they were surprised at um, that we kind of came in guns blazing a little bit. <laughs> so just um, moving away from that, what do you, what do you feel is the biggest misconception right now about this issue? of a justice-based approach to climate change or just climate change in general? The biggest misconception I would have given this answer last year as well is um, that our economy, which is dependent on oil, will be unhealthy and we'll lose jobs um, and infrastructure if we move in a more sustainable direction. This is a complete fallacy and it's what Stephen Harper was elected on for 10 years. Um, we know that our dollar is terrible right now. We know that's because of the price of oil. I don't believe that we can stop pumping oil out of the ground immediately. That would be ideal, but I, I like recognize the infeasibility of that. But we should not build more pipelines that are going to perpetuate our cycle of dependence on fossil fuels because it's just going to cause these uh, boom bust cycles and I'm not I don't come from an economic background like I'm the, I'm the first person to say that I'm more motivated in my own activism and um, by like the fact that the climate change is also a human rights issue it's not just an, an issue about biodiversity or ecology which it is it's about human life and human rights and equity and justice the fact that people who are on the front lines of climate change have also experienced colonization also continue um, to experience subjugation at the hands of much um, larger, often Western countries with greater economic power. And those larger, more powerful countries are, oft, are always, almost always most responsible for climate change. So I would add that another misconception is, is that, you know, Canada is kind of immune to climate change. But if you go to California, which is, you know, Western society that's similar to what we might identify with as like urban Canadians, they're experiencing extreme drought. Mm -hmm. So, and, and very, very variable and extreme weather patterns across the United States. So, you know, we're, most Canadians live within a band geographically that we won't necessarily feel as much, as many effects of climate change, but it also is happening in Canada. Forest fires and floods in the West um, and of course, the Arctic, which is basically like a, a thermometer for the entire globe. Yeah. So, um, but as I said, the, the first one, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here, but the first misconception that comes to mind is that um, making our, our lives and our economy greener, more sustainable and more just is also going to cause like job losses yeah. and things. Um, we know that Canada lags far behind in, in renewables but that renewables are one of the fastest growing um, sectors and, and growing number of jobs. So um, I would just ask anyone who is listening to me and automatically dismissing my arguments to just look into it a little bit um, because things, I think we're really hesitant to move away from an oil soaked economy yeah. um, for a lot of other reasons as well. But yeah. So now that 
an agreement has been reached on climate change uh, that many herald as unprecedented, others criticize as meaningless. Where do you see this going forward? Are you optimistic about what's happened and the direction we're moving on the issue of climate change? I'm optimistic because I have to be. Yeah. Um, but I'm also optimistic because climate almost almost became kind of an election issue yeah. in our last election, and that wasn't the case before. I think more people are talking about climate change. Um, more people are joining like a very broad-based movement of everyone from um, people of color, labor activists, young climate activists, indigenous peoples, mothers, grandparents, um, people who are concerned with refugees and migrants, because that's something that climate change is, is absolutely going to exacerbate and, and create more human crises and loss of human life. So. Um, I'm more optimistic because people are now including dialogue in, including climate change in that dialogue and incorporating other um, forms of violence into the climate dialogue. Um, and also it was heartening to see mainstream media at COP21 bringing those, a certain perspective of um, stories and news back from the climate conference. I also am really hopeful at local, uh, because of local movements. like. It's really disheartening to see um, youth being tokenized, people from the global south being tokenized at the negotiations, and our futures, especially the futures of young people in frontline communities, just being written away with the stroke of a pen um, with, by a lot of people wearing suits coming from across the world. And that's really what COP is. It's so corporate. It's, it's very bureaucratic. Um, and some really problematic like sponsorships um, from oil companies on panels and, and so on. So um, that's disheartening. But what I'm optimistic about is a very, very global growing grassroots movement. And it's also from you know an international governance level. Um, now we can work towards strengthening this agreement over the next five years until 2020 when it comes into place. So I would love to see some kind of legally binding consequences for not meeting emissions targets. The likelihood of that happening is slim, but at least we can build on the better review mechanisms that the Paris Agreement uh, created. So it's better than, um, you know, when we came out of Copenhagen, certainly. Um, it's perhaps better than we came out of Lima because more climate, Canada, for instance, pledged more climate finance, not nearly enough still. But um, ultimately, I do have to talk you know, to my friends who are doing work, who are like-minded to keep myself optimistic because we need to move far more quickly than we are. Um, but yes, I think in general, I am hopeful that change can happen. Not that it is necessarily going to happen, but that we have the power to um, make change in the next year, basically. Okay. Thank you very much. It was good to have you on the program again. And I think this is a topic that uh, we're all going to be watching uh, for a long time to come. Thank you so much for having me. And I would just um, make a note and invite any any listeners who are interested to um, give us a shout on social media we're the canadian youth delegation on facebook and you can reach us on twitter at cyd underscore djc 
um, Delegation Jeunesse Canadienne. And um, we're going to be doing some organizing around the upcoming Premier Summit. Uh, we're not sure exactly what yet. Um, so if you'd like to be involved with uh, holding our government accountable to the targets and pledges that it made, both during the uh, election campaign and also at COP21, please give us a shout uh, because we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Quinn. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Next, Quinn and Chris speak with Luke Wallace and discuss how he tries to inspire hope for environmental change through music. Welcome, Luke Wallace. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'd like to start the interview by asking you about folktivism. What does it mean to you? Folktivism. Um, that's a that's a term that someone else actually coined and did a little write up about some of the work that I'm doing and labeled it as folktivism. Um, and I think it's a cool phrase. Um, it's it's I guess they were using it to describe this kind of merge that I've that I've started uh, early in my years that kind of mesh uh, my music and my, my songwriting into some sort of mode of activism, which has traditionally been a part of folk music um, forever, but seems a lot of folk music has lost that strain and gone kind of down the love song sort of trail. And so I'm trying to kind of uh, reiterate what folk, folk music really is, which is uh, some political and social messaging mm. um, meshed in, right? Yeah. So when did you know that this was the kind of art and activism that you wanted to make a part of your life? Yeah, it came it came about kind of when I was about 16 or 17 years old. It, it I started having to make some decisions about what I wanted to do with my time and my life, and and there were kind of two premises that I had uh, stuck in my head, and one of which was I had to I had to push for the conservation of beautiful places and try to raise awareness about all the beautiful species that live along our coastline, and the second was that I had to play music for the rest of my life, and um, those were two kind of things that I couldn't give up, and so I just merged them one day and just started thinking about how I could use my music to, to, to do what I thought I needed to do. So Luke, you're a songwriter and a documentary filmmaker. How do you view these two mediums as different in terms of getting a message about conservation across? Yeah, um, I got into filmmaking um, one day when I realized that there were things that I couldn't do with my music, that, that you can hit people on certain emotional levels with music and you can um, convey a certain amount of things in a, in, in a certain way, but there's a role that, that visual art and film in particular plays in, in moving people and motivating them. Um, you know, just like I could never fully sum up what an orca whale looks like into a song, but I could, in a single photograph, um, give a very good descriptor of what that animal's like and the role that it plays in its ecosystem, for example. Um, so. I think film film kind of fills a void that the music will never be able to truly achieve, um, and to have that and, and to pair them together, I think is, is quite a powerful um, way of, of getting a message across. So, what's been maybe the greatest lesson you've taken away from your work in film and music? You know, I, the greatest lesson that I've learned so far in in kind of creating films and then having the opportunity to tour them and and uh, meet people is just truly how many good people there are in the world and how many people there are fighting for the well-being of local ecosystems and our coastline and, and the planet Earth in itself. Um, you know, it, it always comes back to, I'm sure if you talk to many other musicians and filmmakers, it'll come back to the people. And even though most of my filming has been wildlife and nature, it's, it's the memories that I take are, are the ones that I've met where I've met people who have helped set up screenings or helped um, advertiser or taking me out on their boat to, to get footage. Um, it's memories of those people and realizing just how many people are part of this movement and how many people really do uh, want to help in, in the conservation of planet Earth. Mm. 
Now, this is a pretty broad question, but what would you say is the biggest message you want people to hear that could change their minds about environmental justice and climate change? Yeah, something I've kind of been focusing on a lot lately, especially when given the opportunity to speak, is um, that kind of in addressing climate change and, and pushing for climate justice, um, it's not just about the you know atmosphere of the planet Earth or the well-being of the oceans, but it's, it incorporates a plethora of other um, uh, problems and, and solutions in that, like, you know, by addressing climate change, we're also addressing um, gender inequality. We're also addressing um, racism around the world. We're addressing the rights of nature. We are, um, you know, in, uh, addressing, um, you know, frontline communities and, and helping them uh, in regaining, for example, land and title or um, just supporting the ability for them to sustain themselves. And, and you get a lot of, you know, industry coming into areas, especially along BC's coast, and they come in and they want to build a, an LNG facility or a refinery. And, you know, they're not just harming the environment when they come in and do this. They're, they're uh, ridding First Nations and, and non-Indigenous communities of their ability to sustain themselves um, in the areas that they live. Um, and so I think it's really important when we talk about the climate justice movement to recognize that it's not just climate justice, it's, it's many other social problems, and that by centering around climate justice, we can actually simultaneously address a lot of other issues that, that are deserving of our time. Let's expand on that a little bit. Uh, how does the issue of uh, climate change and environmental justice tie into these other issues? You mentioned indigenous rights. Mm -hmm. So, okay, good question. So, um, when we support frontline communities up north, for example, uh, I've been working with a group called Lulu Island, who have just set up a camp um, to uh, stop the construction of an LNG facility uh, built by a company called Petronas. And so we, so, and, and Lilu Island, they're not just there to uh, stop the LNG facility. They're there to um, express and practice their traditional culture on, on the land um, that they've lived on for thousands of years. And, and so by supporting them and, and, say, raising funds for them and raising awareness about their resistance to the project, we are both supporting uh, the climate justice movement by rejecting a fossil fuel expansion, but we're also supporting First Nations communities in their right to their traditional land and their right to the ability to sustain themselves from the salmon in the river, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so you can do either, and by doing both, you're supporting both, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Is there a specific issue when you're promoting uh, these ideas that gives you the biggest pushback from the public? Uh, and why do you think people would object to it? You know, I, it's so hard. It, that's a tough one because there's there's such a wide range of opinions on all of these projects. Um, I mean, I, I guess the thing that comes to mind, it has to do with liquefied natural gas. Um, mm. There are so many people and corporations out there pushing liquefied natural gas as the solution to climate change, saying that this is the cleanest burning fossil fuel we have and that it's creating a lot more jobs than, say, an oil refinery does or, or an oil pipeline, um, and, and it's much safer and all these things. And, and there's kind of these very broken arguments that you only have to scratch the surface of in the LNG industry to realize that, that they're quite wrong and, and, you know, emissions come into play and people are arguing that it's this very clean burning fossil fuel and when you look at the total emissions from fracking all the way until the burning of the gas at the end of the line, we're, we're talking greater emissions than an oil refinery, almost as many, almost as much as a coal burning power plant. And so, so you run into that a lot, but most of that has to do again with the messaging from our provincial government and the messaging from corporations where all we see some people's only interaction with LNG, at least in my province, is the five 
five facts about LNG that the, the provincial government has put out, all of which are bogus. You can rip every single one apart quite easily. And so you've got people who are going, ah, oh, this sounds okay, when in reality we just have to look a little bit further and realize really how costly the LNG industry will be on the planet Earth and our economy if we do what, what my provincial government is proposing we do. Would you mind telling us a little bit about what Music for Change is? Absolutely. Um, Music for Change is a workshop that a friend and I ran um, at the Conference of Youth in Paris, which was a uh, conference preceding COP21, um, the UN Climate Conference that just happened this past December. Um, my friend's name is Tatiana Speed, and um, it's a vision that she kind of started and invited me on once we realized we were both uh, attending COI and COP21. Um, and this is a workshop that we've run, and, and uh, we've done it a couple of times now, and it just involves inspiring and talking with people about how to use art and specifically songwriting in the climate justice movement. And so we run this workshop in, in Paris. We run it with uh, about 10 people from all over the planet Earth. And we took turns. We kind of wrote a little bit of a song, and then everyone took turns writing pieces and writing a verse or two of their own work. And then at the end, we had a big jam. We all wrote a chorus together. Um, and, and the kind of the point of the workshop was to really get people talking about how we can use art and how we can use our words and songwriting and poetry to push the climate justice movement to the forefront and to, and to really express that and to bring people together around art and climate justice. Do you find that uh, using art in this way sometimes becomes tokenized and some kind, sometimes kind of gets uh, kind of just used as a backdrop rather than actually used as something to deliver a message that can really change people's minds? We were speaking with uh, Brenna Owen, uh, who was at the climate conference this year, and she said that uh, one of the things that kind of made her cynical was that uh, young people at the conference were often just there to be seen and not heard, um, and that, that there's not really a constructive dialogue. I wonder if you experience that with your music presenting it. Do people sometimes just kind of use it as a, a colorful backdrop for an issue that's important without actually paying attention to the, the content of the message? Sure, sure. Um, I can say that I, I didn't experience that um, with my music, and that was because of the people that I was coordinating with and the events that I was associated with mm -hmm. um, were kind of, there's two pretty clear camps in Paris, and, and it was kind of either you're on the side of the climate justice or, or like you said, you're, you're just sort of using art and, and sort of, you know, in the same way that there was a lot of um, indigenous kind of tokenism that I found in Paris that, that pe people were, you know, expressing these supports, but on paper and on the Paris Agreement were failing indigenous communities around the world. Um, there was a little, there was a little bit of that in art and, and definitely very many examples of sort of this sort of example of tokenism of like, yes, thank you for being here, um, but we're not actually going to make the changes that are necessary. Um, but again, I didn't have too much experience with that because I was uh, had the opportunity to play at um, a couple side events and as well as at the Conference of Youth, which was um, quite, I got the impression, uh, quite more sincere and, and sort of real than the COP events themselves. So just talk to me about that a little bit more, what your experience was like in Paris. Yeah, um, I spent a lot of my time um, meeting with youth and, and organizing actions and rallies um, around given um, issues that were coming up in the negotiations day by day. Um, you know, things kind of developed over the two weeks, and, and as the end was approaching, our messaging and our actions became a little more focused and a little more serious um, and spent, you know, I had about five or six opportunities to perform while I was there, um, both solo and, and with a friend, uh, Takaya Blaney, who um, 
is a young Indigenous uh, songwriter from British Columbia here as well. Um, so her and I performed a number of times, and yeah, I, spent, I just spent a lot of time at COP kind of meeting with young people and doing some interviews and filming a little bit. Um, and yeah, we had some, there was a, there was a very cool rally that, I, that I'd like to mention, and it was on the very last day of COP, on the Friday, and you know, with the whole everything that happened in Paris leading up to the leading to the climate conference, um, you know, there was a massive emergency police state on and, and it was uh, through a bit of a wrench in climate protests and, and the plans that the public had and of, for public engagement and protest during the events. Um, and, you know, it was the sort of thing where you couldn't really stand with anyone else outside. In fact, any two people standing with a, any political message were immediately arrested mm. and, and, you know, held by the police. And it was this very strange world to live in, especially in the climate world, because um, usually we at least have some voice. And so on the final day of COP, we uh, all got together, about 600 of us youth, and, and kind of decided to finally reject our, our inability to step out into the streets. And, and we all kind of linked arms and walked out of the public COP building um, hand in hand and, and met up in front of the main COP building. And another 200 youth came from inside that building. We all met out front. And there's this beautiful meeting of a lot of young people um, with a pretty clear message that the call process had, had kind of let us down and it wasn't really serving the purpose of humanity anymore and that we as the public had the solutions and we have the solutions that we need and we can go forward without the unyielding support of our uh, political leaders, for example. Wow. So here's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. Suppose you were running the world right now. You had all the power you needed to do anything that you wanted to do what would be the thing that you would immediately change that you think would, would really uh, turn the tide and, and, and make a positive influence on these issues that you, that you sing about and, and make documentary films about? Yeah, um, I mean, there's, there's almost no answer to that question and many answers to that question. Yeah. I, I guess a, co a couple things that come to mind are um, a sort of a wakefulness within a population. There are still far too many people um, listen, listening to the mainstream media and, and kind of taking what they say uh, as, as truth. Um, and that's really, you know, when we talk about the relationship between climate change and for what I was saying about the LNG industry in BC, and then, and then you take that to like war propaganda on the news right now, and you've got a massive portion of the population sitting around going, oh, okay, well, I, I guess, you know, these guys are bad and people are failing to see the relationship between all these things. And it's mostly due to the fact that people are just watching the mainstream media and, and not, which is, is not helping people draw connections between climate change, between war, between refugees. These things are all linked, but not if we only watch a single biased source of media without really taking the time to look outward. Um, and so I don't know if that's a particular thing to change about the world, but it really it, it involves an awakefulness and alertfulness from every single human being. And, and it's happening slowly but surely. People are waking up. But if there was, you know, kind of a massive consciousness growth within the human population, we could very quickly overcome all the problems that we're talking about, but not if people just continue to sit at their house watching CNN, watching Fox News, watching, you know, for any, actually any, any of the news stations in Canada either, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the second thing is to put trees in the ground. <laughs> yeah. I think I think we're overcomplicating the problem um, to a point where, where we're all, our hands are always tied because there's so many factors to look at, and I think Again, planting trees is another one of these things that it's so simple, but we're addressing so many issues simultaneously by putting trees in the ground. And, and I think that's something that we don't need the permission of anyone really to do. There's massive extensive private and public land out there that can be 
tree planted immediately and it will solve, again, many of the problems that we've been talking about in this conversation. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, what gives you hope at this time on this issue of uh, environmental justice and, and justice for indigenous groups and other affected populations? Mm-hmm. Um, so since I started stepping into the world of music and activism about four years ago, I've, I've only met thousands of people who are in such powerful positions who, and who are such wonderfully powerful people and I'm, and I'm so confident um, that together we really we really can make the changes and I take so much hope from all the people that I meet every day when I get to play shows or talk with people or go to events and, and you just hear about people doing brilliant things around the world and especially young people there's a, a sense within the, the young folks these days that that it's sort of there is no there is no other way other than a massive climate justice movement and it's growing every day and it's going to continue to grow and you know five years ago in my province for example there were a number of massive oil pipelines proposed and they were all in the realm of don't bother talking about against it it's going to happen you know i don't see why you would spend your time shutting it down and as it stands right now the northern gateway project is dead and the kinder morgan project will not get built and we are overcoming these obstacles year by year and it seems slow and it seems like we're always up against the wall but at the same time things are changing very rapidly around the world and and i think if we continue on this path it, it, you know we're growing exponentially and, and very soon this movement will be a massive wave and, and the public will take the power back i think so what do you say to the people who are still cynical about this how do you motivate them to uh to have the kind of hope that you're talking about hmm. you know i think <laughs> I think it's through art and it's through music and it's through the fact that this doesn't have to be a depressing no, no, no movement. We do, there are projects that need to be stopped, but this can also be a massive dance party. It can be a massive sing-along. It can be a massive re-coming of what it means to be in a community, what it means to, as it, to be a member of humanity. Like we can redefine these things and we can make it into any world that we want. And I think that's a beautiful concept in that, you know, this isn't the only way. There are many other ways that we can shape our world. And it's actually quite exciting and quite motivating to think about them and to think about what type of world we want to live in. And then let's all work together towards building that. And I think if we approach it from that angle, a lot of people who are kind of stuck in the in the rut will go, actually, I'm, I'm, down, to, I'm down to imagine a beautiful world and, and, you know, maybe we can all work together and build it. That's great. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me on here. This is a lot of fun. Luke, when's the, uh, uh, when's the next album yeah, coming out? <laughs> well, we released uh, Little Rivers Matter 2 this past September um, and kind of are going to tour that through the summer. And I was just, I, I was meeting with my band yesterday talking about it. And um, it feels like the next piece of work that we are going to release has to honestly be a, a piece of gold. And it has to be the, it has to be the best thing we've ever written, best thing we've ever recorded and the most you know, like it, it's, it needs to be the, it needs to be the next step and it's not something that we're going to rush to put out. And so I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, right now my timeline would be to start recording maybe in September once everything's written and then, and then have something out hopefully in the spring of 2017 and launch that into a, a as big of a tour as we can at least. Oh, fantastic. Sounds fantastic. We'll look forward to that. Very cool. Now Noah Gordon speaks to Queen students about their thoughts on climate change. What are your thoughts on global warming? 
Um, I think it's becoming more of an issue, especially this year. I didn't really notice it until this winter, which was really strange because it didn't snow till end of December. And even now it's still very warm out. And um, But other than that, I don't think there's very much um, talk about it or just mm-hmm. like in, in the general public, it's not talked about very much other than... Right. Like polar bears. And you you said that you're from Calgary, right? So are you speaking about just here in Kingston that you've seen it? Or when you went home over the break, did you see anything in Calgary that was that was different about the winter? It was not as much in Calgary because it snowed a lot earlier there. But um, my family definitely did say they noticed it living there full time. Um, and especially just with weird weather changes and things like that. It's just been changing a lot lately. Right. Mm-hmm. And did you hear about the the United Nations conference that was held in Paris on climate change back in December? Yes, I heard briefly about it, but I didn't hear much about what was decided or what went on. I just knew it was going on. Right. And so would you have any suggestions on what Canada's role should be in environmental change? If you could spitball any ideas. I don't know about ideas. I just think we need to take more of a stance or have more a presence about it like it's not talked about as much as it could be i think and since it's becoming such a huge issue i think it should be a much more um the canada needs to start getting more serious about it yeah it needs to be talked about and brought to the forefront of people's minds a lot more than it is what are your thoughts on global warming um i noticed recently that it was became more prevalent because the weather got a lot warmer uh over the winter Mm -hmm. and i was in new york recently as well and i found it was even warmer down there um it was like uh it was christmas day and we were walking around without jackets on so i'm thinking that i don't know if that's I don't know much about it, but maybe it's worse down in the States if they don't have the same amount of environmental care as we do up here. I'm not really sure, but I can definitely see it's becoming more of an issue. That's a good point. So do do you think that the weather is the deciding factor for people like to, uh, to get uh, environmental change, environmental issues on their mind? Or do you think that um, people should be more aware of it, whether we can notice it outside or not? I think it's definitely a motivating factor because that's something we are all exposed to. We don't necessarily get the information on what's actually happening. So mm-hmm. that's a, definitely a step to kind of scare people a little bit. Yeah, and it seems like a like an almost out of sight, out of mind thing right now. But yeah. we can feel it, so everyone's sort of getting a little bit more concerned maybe. Yeah, I feel like everyone knows about it, but no one really talks about it and is given information on it. So by seeing how it's actually starting to become an issue, that should hopefully like inspire some change what are your thoughts on global warming global warming is uh quite concerning and i think people are more and more aware of that but in my opinion they're not uh behaving behaving sorry the the way they should because um in my opinion recycling is a first step but uh, to be efficient, people should uh, radically uh, change the way they behave and they consume. But uh, it has to be like a consensus. It's not um, individual um, mm-hmm. action that will be enough. Uh, it needs to be run by governments, by international uh, institutions to apply some very strict rules mm-hmm. on commerce and on trading because uh, 
basically um, the most polluting activities are um, energy and food and manufacturing mm -hmm. and these are things on which government can apply uh, law right. on rules basically that's a great point thank you so much so you mentioned that you are from France and there was a big United Nations conference that was held in Paris back in December on climate change can you speak to that at all about the atmosphere of maybe the the conference itself or maybe just the 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 environmental habits of France in general yes so um, the climate of this conference was a bit complicated because we had these uh, terrorist attacks uh, right. a few few weeks earlier so there was a lot of uh, anticipation on this event hopefully everything went well but um, on the French point of view, um, this was not much of a success because, um, okay, we made a consensus. Mm -hmm. All the countries uh, agreed on one thing, but it's clearly not enough because it's very uh, cloudy measures. Uh, it's not clear. There, there is no specific guideline to follow for every country. Mm -hmm. um, in my opinion, this is just the first step that is good because the United States and China, which are the biggest polluters, uh, they were included in this conference. Mm -hmm. But I think the, they I agreed on 2.5 or 1.5 um, degrees Celsius above yes, the exactly. levels, right? In my opinion, there is no way to measure that uh, in terms of um, improvement or efficiency that uh, the... Um, Mm -hmm. the countries can do so it's it was funny to see all these uh government leaders uh congratulate themselves at the yeah. end of the conference we saw that on every uh, tv channel in france mm -hmm. but uh, we as french people consider this as something that will not change anything and we haven't seen any change in our habits wow. ever since so after your interviews this week, Quinn, I want to talk to you about your experiences and kind of reflect a bit on what the themes were brought up and what most interested you about this week's interviews. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, definitely. Uh, one of the big topics that kept coming up with Brenna and Luke as well was uh, the subject of tokenism, the idea that uh, youth involvement is kind of co-opted by uh, a political party or a corporation to just try and show that youth are being seen and youth are engaged without youth actually being included in the dialogue in a constructive way. And I think that's something at university and the many conferences we get involved with here uh, that we've definitely uh, experienced ourselves. Absolutely. I mean, I think as a young person, as a university student who wants to get involved, we are faced with this sort of tokenism every single time I want to get become a part of a kind of large organization. So whether that's a conference, volunteering for a charity, volunteering for a political party in an election, I mean, you just hear, we want young people, we want young people's voice. And I think that phrase sort of become meaningless to me. I was at Queen's Model Parliament this past week in Ottawa, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And we had a wide array of amazing guests, including MPs, other people who influence public policy in Canada. And I'd say, you know, the vast majority of them, if not all of them, included somewhere in their speech of you young people are, you know, the future. I mean, it matters so much to me to have you involved in my campaign and my pursuit of whatever their goal was. Mm -hmm. And I just, it almost detracted from what they were saying, frankly. I mean, if they want to show me how they've demonstrated youth involvement, if they want to show me how they have young staff 
or a youth mentorship program, for example, that's phenomenal. I do want to be involved, but having particularly politicians use youth, as you said, as sort of a, a ploy um, to attract votes, to attract support, it's frustrating. And I think that most of the time when you see young people involved, unfortunately, they're there more as a token mm-hmm. than um, actually a substantive part of the whatever sort of political machine they're working for. It's interesting. You don't want to be talked to as young people. You just want to be talked to as people. You know? Or talked why at, is this, right? Why is this a good message? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And I mean, talked at, like just to be told how often, how important you are without being included. It's sort of a bizarre dichotomy. I mean, you mm. keep being told you are all you know, the voices you want to listen to. It's your involvement that, that matters so much. And yet, that that chance for involvement never occurs. Yeah. Those people who are telling you that. It's kind of, you're very important and we want you, now go away. Exactly, you know? and I sit there and wait for a couple decades. Yeah. So what do you think it actually means, youth engagement? What is the difference between the youth voice and the liberal party voice or the corporate voice? One thing I would say is perhaps the youth voice is a bit less corrupted by even like logistical factors and rational, like things that really do need to be taken into account, right? If you're you know, the head of the Liberal Party, as you said, or the head of a major NGO or something like that, you're faced with a wide array of sort of logistical um, realities that will constrain your whatever movement you're part of. Mm-hmm. I think it's perhaps youth and young people, including myself, this, these things don't occur to us as quickly. So we're able to envision sort of broader goals, um, more far-reaching reforms, that sort of thing. That's sort of it can what, be completely idealistic. Yeah, and I think maybe idealism needs to happen more. And obviously, you need to be confronted with realities at a certain point that has to happen. But you also need people to push the boundaries to get you know these kind of dream guests, we say, or these dream goals or dream policies. Um, so I think that's kind of what it means to me. Do you find similar patterns? I would agree. I think that's very true. And I think that if if there is some advantage in getting a youth voice uh, involved in the dialogue on these issues, um, not to pat ourselves on the back too hardly, but I think we've kind of achieved that with this week's episode. We've got a much younger voice uh, in Brenna Owen. Of course, it's good to have her back, having the person who founded this show, uh, and Luke Wallace, who's really... Uh, speaking for a younger community of people growing up in BC who are looking at the environment as something that is uh, completely interrelated with justice issues and income issues and economic issues and ultimately the identity of British Columbia and the country. So um, I think it's good to get that perspective and to get that perspective from people who don't really have uh, a stake in deceiving you one way or the other or trying to persuade you. Absolutely. And I mean, we began this episode with the context of the of climate change, of the Paris climate talks, but I think it's sort of evolved into more of a youth engagement episode. Mm-hmm. And I think we're both so excited to have such young guests on the show. And it's nice. I mean, I think our listeners more than we expect like to have young people talk mm-hmm. about the issues that are important to us. Do you think it makes any difference that we are young people talking to young people? Or are we just kind of like, uh, you know, spitting out an echo of what the older generation wants us to think about these things anyway. Are we actually authentically young and original with what our content is right now? Am I breaking down the whole episode? Sorry. I, <laughs> I think that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm sure that I'm mimicking some of my, my parents' beliefs mm-hmm. who are close to me, but I don't think that it's just some replication. I believe that my, by the virtue of my age, necessarily I think differently than other people who are older than me. And I think mm-hmm. it does give you 
new perspective because just reflecting on my time model parliament thinking about um prime minister trudeau compared with the norms um instituted under prime minister harper you know the silence in the media for instance the sort of opaqueness of his rule and time in office that seemed like the norm to me whereas people who've had who've been alive for longer frankly that is an aberration in the way that prime ministers behave so i think just your age gives you a very different perspective on what is normal what is to be expected and i think being young can allow some more flexibility because you're not used to things being a certain way for as long as other people. And it, and it creates a different sense of urgency, right? Like you're talking about uh, growing up under Harper. Mm-hmm. You know, it, an older person might look at the way that Harper was approaching the environment and say, well, you know, it's an ebb and flow. There's cycles. It's Maybe it's changing right now, but it'll change back. Whereas a younger person will say, well, no, it's never been the way that I want it to be. So we have to do something now. So maybe it's a better... It, creates different kind of incentive Absolutely. being young and experiencing these things. Well, one of the big takeaways that I got from interviewing uh, Luke Wallace and, and Bernard Owen uh, was on the question of having hope. And I, I thought that it was very good to hear from people who, you know, are right in the thick of uh, the activism and the debate on, on these issues, uh, who are often the most cynical and the most critical, that they still had some sense of hope. Uh, Luke Wallace was very clear about this, and I think it was a little bit inspiring, actually, that he was saying um, he gets a lot of hope from meeting people and talking about these issues, uh, because as cynical as we may be and as bleak as uh, the science may tell us about uh, the direction that environmental degradation is taking our country and the world, um, you still you meet with people and you see the potential for change in the enthusiasm that people have about these ideas. Uh, and it kind of convinces you that uh, that that change could be possible, whatever that means, that, that a, a solution could be possible uh, for these issues affecting environmental justice. Um, and I thought that was very good to hear. That concludes the seventh episode of season four of Right of Reply on CFRC 101.9 FM. Be sure to come by to the Common Ground in the Queen Centre on February 4th from 7 to 9 p.m. to take part in Gender Equality Night, a coffeehouse collaborative with Queen's Amnesty International, Not For Sale, Room to Read, Queen's International Justice Mission, and Right of Reply for Kia's International Development Week. The night will feature musical performances, shared stories, spoken word, and much more to discuss the millennial goals for gender equality.